It's TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of April 22nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I ran across an article this week that was simultaneously funny and somewhat disturbing. The article was in tweakers.net about a secure USB drive that really isn't very secure. Now, losing a thumb drive can be a problem, and a lot of these devices are now 2 gigabytes or more. There are some that are 4, probably there will be before long, others that are 6, 8, and just they'll keep growing. But the devices are small, very small, they're easy to lose. I've lost one. I'm not concerned about the one I lost. It did have every password to every system that I have any access to on it, but all of that information was encrypted. So the fact that I lost it was no big deal, other than it was an annoyance because I was on my way to spend an evening at my older daughter's and her husband's apartment to take care of the cats and the dog because they were out of town. I took a lot of work with me on that device. wasn't able to do the work because I didn't have it. But except for that, losing it was no big deal. Well, Seipel International released a thumb drive called the Secure Stick, claiming it would self-destruct if a user entered an incorrect password more than a set number of times. That stick was commissioned by the French government, and excuse me, my heritage is French, but I have to start thinking Maginot Line here. A one gigabyte thumb drive from this company cost $175 compared to the standard one gigabyte thumb drives at, oh, maybe about ten bucks or so these days. Well, it turned out not to be very secure. If you want the entire story, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that will take you to TweakersNet and to their review of this device and how they were able to crack it very easily. The Tweaker site mentioned an application called TrueCrypt, so I decided to take a look at TrueCrypt. This is an application, a little utility, that can encrypt the data in a file a directory, or an entire device. And that device could be a hard drive, a floppy, a zip drive, or a thumb drive. And it can encrypt it in such a way that even if you are captured and forced to give someone the password, the data will still be encrypted. Okay, so that's maybe a little too much like 007 or the folks in Alias. Two points before I go any further. If you download TrueCrypt, read the instructions and plan on spending some time. There's a quick start guide, but you do want to read the rest of the manual, and the manual is more than 80 pages. Second point, yes, this is exactly the kind of tool that a terrorist would simply love to use. As for terrorists, I'm sure that they're using technology such as TrueCrypt right now. That can't be helped. Any technology can be used for good or bad. Technology just is. A stone can be used to build a house, or it could be a murder weapon. Fire can warm us, it can kill us. If we ever manage to find a way to instill tolerance in all the people of the world, and that includes us, then devices and technologies such as this will be used only for good. Until then, TrueCrypt exists, and if you have information that you want to protect, this is a good way to do it. TrueCrypt creates a virtual encrypted disk within a file and mounts that file as a real disk that allows encryption that is automatic, real-time, and transparent. 
And as the people who developed the application point out, it provides two levels of plausible deniability in case an adversary forces you to reveal the password. These two levels are the option to create a hidden volume and the fact that TrueCrypt volumes cannot be distinguished from random data. That is, they contain no specific header, footer, or other marker. Reading the manual for this free open source application made me think that I had somehow fallen into a James Bond movie and Q had just handed me the manual for the latest high-tech device that would certainly save my life in the upcoming episode. After installing TrueCrypt, I quickly worked my way through the beginner's tutorial and created a file on Drive C. That file became a drive that I could easily mount and dismount. Mounted, it appeared in Windows Explorer. Dismounted, it simply appeared as a file. I could open the file with an application such as UltraEdit, but there was, was nothing inside that was readable. Now, I cleverly called this file TrueCrypt. Needless to say, that would not be a wise name to use if you want to keep your data private and you're in some threat of being captured. Nor would you be wise to choose a name such as www.dallas.mpeg. If you want to hide data, placing the file in a directory with a lot of other files and naming it something that won't call attention to itself, oh, for example, devcache.dll and stick it in the Windows directory, I don't think that would be a too good an idea, but if you've got maybe thousands of MP3 files, give it a random song title. Put the file in with all of your MP3 files. You know where to look for it. Nobody else would know that the file isn't a legitimate MP3. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see some screen captures that show how the drive works when it's mounted and what it looks like if you try to hack into the file when it's not mounted. Nothing there. When I created the encrypted drive, I used a relatively short, just an eight-character password. TrueCrypt was a little annoyed by that. It told me that I really ought to use something longer, longer is better, and asked if I wanted to proceed. Well, I'm not worried about being captured, so I did proceed. Password can be long and still memorable, though. It can even be something that you can write a reminder for without making it something that anybody else could guess. For example, you could use yellow 3755 submarine, the number four, cats. That would be a password that nobody would guess, even if you left a note to yourself. But you could leave a note that said something like, We all live in a Beatles song at my childhood street address, and how many animals lived with us? That would be enough to cue your memory to yellow submarine, the number 3755, your street address when you were a child, and four cats, the number of animals that lived with you. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll find a description of the encryption methods that this little application can use. TrueCrypt has the option of using several. If you don't understand, and I certainly don't claim that I do, just pick the one that they recommend. You can read through here and realize that some of them are perhaps marginally better than the other, but any encryption is better than no encryption. And, in fact, you can even cascade encryptions, which use two or even three encryption methods, one after the other. Are there some oddities? Well, yeah, there are. For encrypted USB devices, I frequently see a message that tells me the device is still in use when I try to eject it, even though I have dismounted the encrypted drive. This is a Windows application and a Linux application. If you use a Mac, it's not for you. 
TrueCrypt is not a particularly good choice if you want to take a thumb drive to another computer and use it, but there is a traveler disk setup option. It's possible, but somewhat difficult to use TrueCrypt without leaving any traces on Windows that it's been there. In other words, if you use a friend's computer, you are going to leave some traces that it was there, unless you also use an application called BART PE. BART PE stands for BART's Pre-Installed Environment. That's essentially the Windows operating system prepared in a way that it can be entirely stored on and booted up from a CD or DVD, complete with the registry, temporary files, and everything else stored in RAM. TrueCrypt is very handy for moving files from the office to home and from home back to the office without any concern that if I happen to lose that thumb drive, that I've lost some important data that belongs to the company. So overall, if you need security, this is the way to get it. It's free. It's powerful. That's a pretty good combination. Even FBI agents lose laptop computers, thumb drives, and guns. Not much we can do to help with the loss of guns, but certainly we can help with laptop computers and thumb drives. TrueCrypt is a good way to make sure the data that you're responsible for doesn't get away from you. For more information, check out the TrueCrypt website. There's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And as for cats, TrueCrypt picks up the coveted 5-cat TechBiter Worldwide Award. You know, I like to complain from time to time about bad service from companies. So I feel it's important to tell you about companies that provide superior service when I bump into them. This isn't the first time I've mentioned TCR, Computer Assembler, with offices in Pickerington and Lancaster. Probably won't be the last time I mention them. But in this case, it's not me providing a well-deserved pat on the back. This week I received a note from a listener. The note read, I asked you about a month ago about TCR. At your suggestion, my sister got her computer through them and is quite pleased with the service, the price, and the warranty, as well as the system they built for her. They listened to what she wanted, and she got out the door at around $950, including the operating system and some office programs, nice monitor, and tax. They even downloaded and set up AVG for her. AVG, if you're unfamiliar, is the antivirus system that I generally recommend. Now, I'm sure that TCR has some dissatisfied customers, Somewhere. I've never heard from one. Although TCR has built a strong Central Ohio following based on listening to what their customers want, advising customers honestly, and then treating customers well after the sale, the company will also assemble systems and ship them. There's a link to the TCR website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Got a question this week. Whenever a condition is at variance with an ideal state, which itself seems to change, Windows nags me with vague and alarmist warning messages. Each time I'm reminded of an electronic sign near the airport, which has read threat level orange for the past few years. By the way, this is not a question that came from Central Ohio, so it's not a sign that you'll see at Port Columbus. Windows tells me, mostly through obtrusive pop-up balloons, whether I'm connected to a network or not, whether a cable is connected or not, whether my machine might be at risk of unspecified problems, and on and on. How do I tell the operating system itself to shut up and stay shut? 
I might also point out that this was a question from someone who is a Mac user, who prefers to use a Mac, and is suddenly forced, for business reasons, to use a PC. Well, the answer to the question is pretty easy. Visit the control panel, click the folder option. I prefer to use the classic view to do that. Then select the view tab, then deselect, show pop-up description for folder and desktop items, and click OK. Another very good choice is to obtain the free Tweak UI from Microsoft's website, and Microsoft has a lot of other Power Tool and Power Toy applications, and don't let Power Toy fool you. There are some very powerful Power Toys. Obtain some of those free tools from Microsoft's website, browse through them, and see what you can change with those tools. I am sitting here looking at a box. Hang on, it's here somewhere. Ah, here it is. Down here. I'm sitting here looking at a box. This box right here. I just opened it. A box with uh, Windows Vista. Back in mid-February, I wrote, and here I quote myself, I've received a lot of questions about Vista. Should I upgrade now or later is the primary question. In reviewing that question, I suggest leaving out the now or later part, at least for the immediate future. The primary question is whether you should upgrade. For me, the current answer is no, but that is subject to change. At that time, I said the primary case against upgrading turns on several points. The system I have works just fine the way it is. Vista, although probably compatible with all of my hardware, isn't compatible with some of my software. And no matter how well any system has been tested, there will always be some problems that don't become apparent until the product is in the hands of consumers, and right now I just don't have time to deal with those. I said I'd probably hold off for a few months. Well, mid-February. We're now near the end of April. That's a few months. I've now decided that I owe it to you to get Vista installed and see how it works. I still won't have time to install it for at least this week, but I will install it. Prior to doing that, I asked Marshall Thompson, the head of TCR, a company I mentioned just a bit ago, for some guidance. His reply was that Vista is not yet ready for prime time. I already pretty much knew that. There is a problem, he says, with it seeing network printers. Vista Mail isn't stable. A number of installations that have been out there for a while are starting to encounter extremely long boot and shutdown times, minutes, not seconds. Second-tier programs and utilities such as Nero are struggling to produce stable Vista-compatible versions. You have to count on at least 2 gigabytes of RAM and do upgrades only on relatively new PCs. Marshall continued that he gets the impression that software and hardware developers got tired of so many final tweaks by Microsoft, so that when Microsoft finally locked the code, it was too late for a lot of those companies, large and small, to make a smooth transition. On the plus side, Marshall Thompson says he has been won over by the interface and firmly believes that Vista is the future. However, he also says he thinks it's going to be two years before corporate America tries to make the conversion, and that will be only because Microsoft will be ending its support for XP. Meaningful customer acceptance will start only after Service Pack 1. Now, there are a lot of companies out there, big ones, that are still using Windows 2000. I'm not sure how far along that transition is actually going to be starting in a couple of years. It'll start, but it's probably going to be very slow. Large companies tend to be rather sluggish about upgrading to new operating systems. 
Marshall Thompson says the best part of Vista for us has been the droves of customers sent over to us to acquire XP-based PCs. We're one of the very few outlets for XP-based notebooks in all of central Ohio. The big boys jumped on the Vista bandwagon too early. They failed to understand that the average consumer has gone from having trouble spelling PC to being pretty savvy about the latest and greatest in the computer world. And I certainly agree with most of that. Computer manufacturers should continue to offer XP for those who don't want to change just yet. Microsoft really shouldn't end support for XP in two years. I would hope that they make uh, a decision to extend that perhaps out to five years. If you have an office full of XP machines, and as I mentioned, a lot of companies are still using Windows 2000, you don't want to be forced to use Vista just yet. And for many home and small office users, XP does everything they need it to do, or at least that's what they think. Maybe they haven't seen Vista yet. Even so, I'm looking forward to seeing Microsoft's new graphical user interface, and I'll let you know how it goes over the next few weeks. Research in Motion, those are the BlackBerry guys, at first didn't admit there was a problem. Uh, There was. The system in its entirety went down earlier this week. Maybe they were thinking, if we don't mention it, nobody will notice. Uh, Given the large number of BlackBerry users, that was a pretty unlikely wish. Public relations professionals are supposed to communicate with the various publics when things go wrong. That didn't happen in a timely manner with RIM. Finally, after more than two days, RIM came forward with an explanation. The problem was an insufficiently tested software upgrade. Five million BlackBerry users found themselves without the service starting about 8 p.m. Tuesday, and that continued until Thursday night. The upgrade was expected to improve service, not to wreck it. Instead, the upgrade triggered what RIM called a compounding series of interaction errors. At that point, everything done to fix the problem only made it worse. RIM tried to switch to a backup system, but the process didn't work properly. RIM said the switch to backup, also known as failover, had been repeatedly and successfully tested previously. As for users, as of Thursday evening, your service should be back to normal. More trouble for AMD. I have been a fan of advanced micro-devices for a long time, always the underdog. AMD was considered the value leader in CPUs for a long time. They regularly provided processors for computers almost as fast as Intel's, but at a far lower price. AMD beat Intel briefly in the speed wars and still makes worthy products, but price cuts by Intel have forced AMD to cut prices and have in that manner, created huge losses for the company. Advanced Micro Devices continues to struggle. There are signs that the price war is abating, though. Consumers might view that as bad news. Prices of your CPUs are going to go up, but I think it's good for Intel to have at least one viable competitor, and for that one competitor to remain viable, it's got to be profitable. AMD reported this week it had lost $611 million in the first three months of the year. That compares with a profit of $185 million a year ago. Sales amounted to $1.23 billion, about 7% lower than last year. Robert Rivett, who is AMD's chief financial officer on a conference call with analysts, said the first quarter of 2007 was a terrible start to the year, but he said AMD is confident we have a plan to put us back on the right track. 
Looking at the second quarter, AMD is optimistic. Sales are predicted to be flat, but the company projects market share gains at Intel's expense. AMD wouldn't explain the reason for that optimism. And AMD plans to cut about 500 jobs. That's about 3% of its workforce. It says it'll do that by the end of the year through attrition and performance evaluations. In other words, they are going to be firing some people who are not leaving through attrition. And that's this week's program. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 22nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R. You can also send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.